0: progress.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, maybe. All right, welcome to um we me. Welcome to Daily Power Parsha. It is great to see you all. Today is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021, and we are studying the Torah portion of Shlach, which means send, which is talking about the story of Moses sending the 12 tribal representatives, 12 tribal leaders to check out the land of Israel. Now, what's what's very important and, you know, we started speaking about this a little bit yesterday, is that they were all as the Torah says, they were all individuals of distinction. They were all very honorable and distinguished individuals. So, it wasn't like this was a ragtag group of like, you know, 12, you know, whatever that that ended up, you know, causing all this disaster. No, they were in the language of the Torah, individuals of distinction, individuals that were, that were um, of honorable stature. And yet, they were able to fall so low, which is once again a reminder that Torah consistently reminds us about, is that no matter how you know, great one is or lofty one is, a person always can, and there's always the, the possibility, God forbid, of person experiencing a great downfall and making mistakes. So we always have to be on guard and making sure that we're, that we're staying on point. And the key, one of the keys to this, as I started explaining um, yesterday, is the idea, is the notion of arrogance versus humility. So the spies, well, they were really scouts, but they saw themselves as spies. They were ready to, you know, they were like, oh, this is great. We're starring in our own James Bond thriller. This is fantastic. Like, I'll be 007, you be, you know, double high or whatever it is. They were like, they were all right. They were all like, they were excited about the prospect of, you know, being important and, and bringing back the, the report and going in, you know, behind enemy lines. And it was like a whole deal to them. And they got carried away with that part of it. It became about them, and they lost sight of what the mission is. The mission was not that they should be the ones to decide whether or not it could be done. Their mission was not to report back to the people. Their mission was not to sow fear and and dread amongst the populace. That was not their job. Their job was simply to go into the land, answer the following questions, and report back to the commander-in-chief. That's it. That was it. But what happens is, suddenly... Oh, this person has a day or they have their opinion and they have their this and they're holding press conferences. It became about them. They got carried away. You know, we see this often in life. Somebody gets a position of power and the next thing you know, you know, they get corrupted or, or they corrupt the, uh, the, the, the role. What do they say? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So forget that the absolute part, but they didn't have absolute power, but power itself is hard to manage especially if you're not used to it i pointed out yesterday that these weren't the tribal leaders that we've been introduced to in the past so i'm sure they were tribal leaders but not the ones that we know about and were they younger were they less experienced who knows but the moment they got responsibility and power they used it for i would say almost their own kind of self-aggrandizement purposes to become the ones who are giving the speeches and giving the press conferences and telling everybody, you know, what they should or should not do. That was way overstepping their, um, their, uh, their mandate. Okay, I also want to share with you late, uh, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, a mystical perspective on this whole story, which really just opens it up on many, many more levels. But I th- we're still right in the middle of the story, so let's, let's, uh, let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we are going to jump right into the text reading number three. And this is actually so interesting because reading three, I just went back to reading two in case you're wondering. So it ends with Joshua and Caleb addressing the people. These were the two good spies. I mean, look, they're all good. They're all God's creatures, all Jews. Fine. But the two spies that stayed on task, that stayed on mission, were Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So, Yeshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, so they spoke to the people. I'm going to just get a running start here. And they said, the land we passed through to scout, right? They, they knew what their job is, not to spy, but to scout. The land we passed through is an exceedingly good land. And now let's pick it up, reading three. This is today's text, chapter 14, verse number eight. They continued to say, If the Lord desires us, he will bring us to this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, if God wants, we got this. Don't panic. Don't flip out on this. Don't, you know, give up hope and... Be despondent and want to go back to Egypt and, you know, throw in the towel. It's not time to throw in the towel. If Hashem wants, He will bring us to the land and all will be good. Verse number 9. But you shall not rebel against the Lord. The one thing you should not do is go against God. And you will not fear the people of that land for they are as our bread. I love that language. Right? Like bread that you cut up and eat, <laughs> you consume bread. Lachmenu. Lachmenu could mean, literally it literally means bread, lechem is bread, but it also means they are our food. In other words, like we got them. We, if Hashem is with us and we don't go against Hashem, right, then there's no reason to be afraid because they are, they're in the bag, whatever you would say. Let's toggle Rashi for a second. They are for us, for they are they for they are as our bread. Rashi says, as I just mentioned, we will consume them like bread. We got this. Just like bread doesn't put up a fight, right, when it's time to eat challah. It's not like the challah says, "Hey, I got my own knife in the in the in the uh, in the fight." The bread just gets consumed at will, right? At at a person's will. The same thing is true, says Caleb and Joshua to the people. There's nothing to be afraid of. No reason to panic and cry all night. Their protection, says Caleb and Joshua, is removed from them. They don't have special powers or special protection. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What a message. What an empowering message. Do you think the people listened? You think they heard? You think they heeded? No. Verse number 10. The entire congregation, what did they do? Threatened to pelt them with stones, Caleb and Joshua. There were 10 spies sowing fear. Two of them said, slow down. God is good. God loves us. He's going to take us into the land. The people will run in fear. We got them. We got this. There's no problem here. No reason to panic. And what did the people do? They start threatening to pelt Caleb and Joshua, the two voices of sanity, with stones. But at this point, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the children of Israel. God shows up on the scene. The Lord says to Moses, how long will this people provoke me? How much longer will they not believe in me after all the signs I have performed in their midst? <laughs> God is saying, essentially, this is ridiculous, right? Again, the people don't believe. The people are, are are questioning me. The people are are panicked and wanting to go back to Egypt. Forget about it. Last week, we read about how Moshe, how Moses was exasperated with the people, how he was like beside himself that they were asking for meat. He didn't know what to do, do about that. And now Hashem is saying to, Mo, to, to Moses, God is saying to Moses, How long is this going to go on that the people are going to continue to provoke me and question me and not believe in me? So, verse 12, God says, I will strike them with a plague and annihilate them. That's it. I will get rid of the people. Then God says, I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Essentially, God is saying, Let's do this. Let me get rid of all the people. And I'm going to start again, the Jewish people, Moses, with you and your family and maybe all the Levites, right? We'll start that way. You think Moses takes this offer up? No way, Jose. Not happening. 13. Moses said to the Lord, look, look look, look at his argument. But the Egyptians will hear that you have brought this nation out of its midst with great power. And they will say about the inhabitants of this land who have heard that you... O Lord, are in the midst of this people, that you, the Lord, appear to them eye to eye and that your cloud rests over them and you go before them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Like So basically, he's building a narrative. We haven't gotten to the punchline. So the Egyptians are going to hear about, about what's going on and they, they know that you took them out from them with great power and they're going to say that... Um, and, and, and everyone knows that you are with the people and you appear to them eye to eye and that your cloud rests over them and you go with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. Here's the punchline. And if you kill this nation like one man, the nations who have heard of your reputation will say as follows. Since the Lord lacked the ability to bring this nation to the land which he swore to them, he slaughtered them in the desert. Moses says, you want that to be your reputation, God? You... If you, if, ever, if, if you get rid of, if you destroy the entire people right here, right now, in the wilderness, in the desert, you know what everyone's going to say? Egypt and the nations in Canaan, they're going to say, you know why? Because God couldn't take them in. God couldn't deliver them to the promised land. That's why he got rid of them, to save face, because God was powerless against the indigenous nations in the land of Canaan. Moses says to God, you want that to be your story? You want that to be the reputation? You want that to be what people say about you? That you weren't able to do it? This is Moses appealing to, <laughs> to the competitive side, if you will, of God. Now, I know we're making God sound very human and very you know petty emotionally. I get it. And we're, we cannot really fully understand it on this level because that's not the intention. Nonetheless, this is brought down in Torah. Rambam Maimonides says, anytime you encounter anthropomorphic terminology, terminology that speaks of God as having emotion or feeling a certain way or whatever, anger, jealousy, you know, competition, competitiveness, you have to take it with a grain of salt and understand that we're speaking of higher truths, but using human language and human context. So we need to apply the same thing here. What exactly it means in the pure form, I don't know. But this is at least the way the story plays out in the anthropomorphic, in the human-esque Type of language and conversation that God says to Moses, I'm going to get rid of the people. And Moses says to God, if you do that, all the nations are going to say it's because you were unable to deliver them to the promised land. So after that little bit of a strong pushback from Moses, Moses continues, Now, please let the strength of the Lord be increased as you spoke, saying, and he quotes the 13 attributes of divine mercy. Hold on, hold on, let me stop here for a second. After the, the previous major sin, which was the sin of the golden calf, God said, Moses asked for forgiveness, and God said, ultimately, eventually, he said, yes, and God revealed to Moses his 13 attributes of mercy. 13 statements and phrases of God's compassion and love and forgiveness and um, patience with us, right? So now Moses turns to God and says, remember this? And he restates back to God essentially those 13 attributes of mercy that God had told Moses about. Moses now uses them in his prayer for the people. So again, let's start from verse 17. Now, please let the strength of the Lord be increased. As you spoke, saying, in other words, be strong in this area as you yourself spoke to me. And this is the quote. The Lord is slow to anger and abundantly kind, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Who cleanses some and does not cleanse others, who visits the iniquities a parents, and children, even to the third and fourth generations. Now, although it sounds like, hold on, we're calling God vindictive, and God is punishing and remembering and not forgetting, even multi-generationally. I, know, I understand it sounds like that, but nonetheless, these are all considered 13 attributes of mercy. It's not. We even discussed this a few months ago, and we had it originally in the book of Exodus. Um, nonetheless, the point is that Moses says to God, remember your kindness, remember your mercy, remember your forgiving nature. We need some of that right now. Now that you're upset at the people for the sin of the spies, so here's the ask: You got to have a pitch. You got to have the ask. We had the build up, and here we go. Please forgive the iniquity of this nation, in accordance with your abounding kindness. In other words, if you're really so kind, then please forgive the iniquity of this nation, as you bore, as you have borne this people from Egypt until now. In other words, he's kind of putting responsibility on God, saying, "Look." You carried them on your shoulders. You took them out of Egypt. You birthed them as a nation. Okay, you can't drop them now. You cannot abandon them now. They are your problem to deal with. Not to abandon, not to destroy. They are your responsibility to deal with and deal with in a proper way. And look what God says. And the Lord said, look at God's response after how many verses? Um, From verse 13 all the way through verse 19, that's all Moses pitched to God for forgiveness for the people. And the Lord responds, God says, I have forgiven them in accordance with your word. In other words, I have forgiven them as you requested. I I have forgiven them as you have spoken. However, God says, but as surely as i live and as the glory of the lord fills the earth so in other words i promise as surely as i live and the glory of the lord fills the earth i i i i i guarantee this that all the people that all the people who perceived my glory and the signs that i performed in egypt and in the desert yet they have tested me these 10 times Seems like there were 10 tests here. And not listen to my voice. If they will see the land that I swore to their fathers and all who provoke me will not see it. I promise you, says God, that the people that have turned against me, this generation, essentially, they will not see it. It says, if they will see. In other words, it's kind of like God is saying, like, I dare you. and Not I dare you, but it's like, it doesn't work in English. Um, I, I don't think it works smoothly in English. You wouldn't say this in language and conversation, but it's kind of like, um, we'll see if these people will see the land that it's worth to their fathers. And bottom line, all, those who, all who provoke me will not see it. This is where the decree of 40 years of wandering in the desert comes out. Now, we're going to detail it tomorrow because we'll go through those verses. But this is where that concept First becomes expressed by God to Moses. God is essentially going to tell Moses that I'll forgive them, but the, this, these people they're not going to go into the land. that's for sure, right That's the however. I won't destroy them, however they will not see the land. But verse 24, but this is a, a but to the however, but as for my servant Caleb. Since he was possessed by another spirit, that's no need for an exorcism. This is a good thing, right? This is a good other spirit. Since he was filled with another spirit, another energy, and he followed me, right? He stayed true to the mission. So Caleb, I will bring him to the land to which he came. And his descendants will drive its inhabitants out. In other words, Caleb is an exception to the rule. The rule is this entire generation will not enter the land of Israel, including Moses, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. Here we specify Caleb. Now, God continues to say, verse 25, and I'm going to summarize this in a moment so that all the pieces of the dialogue are preserved in our minds. The Amalekites and Canaanites, God says, dwell in the valley. Tomorrow, turn back and journey into the desert toward the Red Sea. Let me explain this, this last little piece. What God is saying to Moses to tell the people is as follows. In southern Israel, the Amalekites and Canaanites dwell there. Don't try to go in now. Don't try now to go into the land of Israel because after I've decreed that for, four, for the next 40 years, you're not going into. Don't be like, oh, I do want to go into now. Don't pull that shtick because Am- Amalek... And the Canaanites, the Amalekites and Canaanites are dwelling there, and they will cut you down. God says, rather, tomorrow turn back and journey into the desert toward the Red Sea. Red Sea, of course, is, remember they crossed that after the Exodus? Basically saying, start turning, not back to Egypt, but instead of continuing the advance toward Israel, we're going to go in a bit of a loop that takes us away from that trajectory. So this is God's way of saying, I have now put on ice, I have now put on pause this entire mission of going to Israel. This has now been frozen to be picked up at a much later time, come back in 40 years after this generation is gone, and we can continue the conversation. So, in summary, today we started off by reading about uh, Joshua and Caleb's attempt to get the people to believe. God can do it. If God is with us, no problem, nothing to be worried about. The enemies are like bread in our hands, <laughs> whatever, right? Okay, so they're like bread, we can consume them. Um, then the people get angry, and then God gets angry at the people, and God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them and start again with you. And Moses says, absolutely not, unacceptable. What are the people going to say? What are the people that we're going to say? They're going to say that you, God, were too weak to bring them into the promised land. That's why, in the cover of darkness, you got rid of everybody. You want that to be your reputation? Right? A soft God? A God that can't get the job done? Of course not. So get the job done. Moses gives the tough sale, and God says, Okay, done. Alright, I will forgive them. I've forgiven them as you spoke. However, However, this generation of people that did not, do not, did not believe in me, right, did not and do not believe in my ability to bring them to the land, this generation will not end up meriting to see the land. This generation will die out in the desert over the next 40 years. As we'll see tomorrow, one year per day, they toured the land for 40 days. So 40 days equals 40 years of wandering. And at the end of the 40 years, the next generation will go in. Um, okay, we'll speak more about that. Oh, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, but even Moses was not spared in that decree. So this becomes a decree of wandering for 40 years. No, it wasn't because they didn't have a map. No, it wasn't because they, they were a bunch of men leading and didn't want to ask for directions. It was per God's command, and that's why they wandered until that generation died out. How do you define a generation in Torah for, this, for these purposes? The ages of t- between the age of twenty to sixty, and again only referring to the males, because only the males, only the men, didn't believe in God's ability and panicked and all that stuff. The women always believed. The women did not die out over these six, over these forty years. Now they might have died of natural causes, but not as part of this, of this, um, of this decree. One thing to mention is that it only hit the men between twenty and sixty. Under twenty, and you were. Did not have to perish over the next 40 years. Over 60, the same is true, although, you know, natural causes, natural causes. It was that age of 20 to 60 of people that really participated in the, in, the, uh, in the sin of the spies and in the panic that ensued that really got the decree against them to not go in. A few insights, I want to share with you a few mystical insights or spiritual insights into the story of the spies because I think it's now appropriate to delve a little bit deeper into the story and present maybe something, another take on it that is wild and out there, but nonetheless, I think very important. Number one, it says in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy that the deeper reason why the spies did not want to go into the land of Israel and why they threw their mission, they threw the mission, they messed it up. Why? A a simple reading has it that they were afraid. They saw giants, they panicked, and they got everyone else to panic. But according to Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, there's another reason. It's because they did not want to live, sorry, leave the spiritual cocoon that was the land, sorry, that was the desert experience. In the Midbar, in the desert, they had all of their physical needs taken care of. They had manna, bread from heaven. The clothes were laundered and grew with them. They had a well of water, the well of Miriam, that traveled with them wherever they went. Clouds of glory protecting them. They had everything you'd need. It's like the Swiss army knife of existence. You had your food, you had your water, you had your shelter, you had you know, your clothes. Everything was covered. No problem. Spiritually, it was the same way. They were in contact with Moses, the greatest of the great. They were in proximity with God. Anyone had a question, it could ultimately go to God and they would get an answer. It was amazing, physically and spiritually. Almost like Messianic times. All right, like we've been discussing in the Course. It was amazing. And they knew, the spies knew, because they were great people. They knew that the moment they stepped foot into the land of Israel, all the miracles. Stop, because then real life begins. You want food? Not gonna come to your doorstep unless you order through an app, but it's not gonna fall down from heaven. You want food? You're gonna have to work for it. You gotta be a farmer. Yeah, 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 put on some overalls, get some work clothes on and get your hands dirty. Hands dirty? We've been living in the desert for 40 years, didn't have to do a thing. Welcome to the new reality, My son, welcome, this is it. The spies didn't want it. It's not that they didn't want to work. They didn't want to to be distracted from the spiritual pursuits. In the desert, they were free from material concerns so that they could focus on their spirituality. And now the prospect is, go to Israel, get a job. And, and not have time to study Torah and not have time to pray and not have time to meditate? Are you kidding me? Why would I want to do that? So again, this is the deeper understanding of why it is that the spies came back with a negative report to exactly derail the mission and to keep the desert gig going. That's what they wanted. They wanted the, the good times, spiritual good times of the desert to keep on rolling, to keep on rocking and rolling. So that's exactly what they did. And it worked. They got another 39 years. They'd already been a year in. They got another 39 plus years in this beautiful spiritual environment. In a sense, in a kind of a twisted sense, they got what they wanted. They got their spiritual, um, they got their spiritual um, oasis, cocoon, and they were happy. They what, passed away, yeah.
0: Me, what did Moses actually say to the, to the group? To, what was his mission? What did he tell them their mission was
1: originally? Uh, he told them the mission is to check out the land and report back. Um, are the cities fortified or are they open? What are the oh, people-
0: so like To prepare for the travels.
1: Yes, prepare for the journey in, exactly. They came back with a negative report. On the, on the simple reading is they panicked and they got, caused others to panic. Or they were arrogant and they caused others to panic. But a deeper reading is that they panicked not physically but spiritually. It's like, imagine. Imagine a parent. It's kind of like, you know, we're showing the Fiddler on the Roof documentary this Sunday. This coming Sunday at, uh, at, at, the, film, at the film screening. Fiddler, a miracle, or miracle of miracles. Right here, this guy. So it's kind of like, okay, imagine you're a parent. And um, now you're facing a prospect. What's the prospect? It's like, okay, so now your family, so you can keep your family in the shtetl. I'm not saying this is exactly the story, but I'm just giving you like a framework. You can keep the family in the shtetl. Where you know the the walls are up and uh, you know no outside influences are coming in and everyone's staying, you know, staying true to true to the mission. Or you can venture out there and risk potential assimilation and dilution of the of, of, of Jewishness. So which would you rather? You can understand that there is, that somebody might make the choice and people might make the choice to say it's better to stay in a very sheltered environment, than to venture out and become corrupted. And so the spies were saying the same thing. We'd rather stay in the desert, a spiritually um, warm and rich environment, than venture into Israel where things could be tricky. We'd rather stay here than go there. And they got it on some level, right? Ultimately, they got, they got what they wanted. But that was kind of what was at stake here, according to the mystics. And that's what they meant when they said that the land consumes its inhabitants. Not physically only. Physically, people were dying. But the land, we will be consumed. If we go into Israel tomorrow, right, and leave the desert environment, we, you and I, said the spies, will be consumed. The earth will consume us. We will be consumed by materialism, right? People are going to start chasing the dollar or the shekel. It's going to become about money and work and dinner parties, and all sorts of things, and the next thing you know, who's worried, Who's thinking about God, even? And spirituality.
0: Yeah. Saying that the land is full of milk and honey, doesn't that that it'll be a very positive, uh, you know, uh, easy kind
1: of? Yeah. The land flowing with milk and honey means, again, that it's beautifully, physically it's beautiful. There's a lot of material wealth and riches there. And their fear was we're all going to assimilate. We're all going to go there and we're all going to get caught up in all the mundane activities and we're going to lose our spiritual compass. We're going to lose our, what do they call it? The North Star. We're going to lose our sense of of identity. And so to protect the identity, they wanted to essentially throw the mission, derail the mission, mess it up, blow it up. How to blow it up? Well, they did it. They came back by saying there's no way and this explains also it's not that there's no way that God can do it God can do anything there's no way that we are going to be able to do it in the way that God wants what is God what is God saying I want you to own your own relationship to me uh, with me in, a, in an environment that is you know materialistic and 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 uh, and, and, and you know it's all about materialism work and, and not in a bad way but just in a practical way and in that environment, I want you to stay true to me. They said it's not going to happen.
0: It's not going to happen. They confident in
1: themselves, they weren't confident. Exactly. But they had.
0: Did they, they knew they were being punished? Like, did they knew they were being banished to stay there? Then? Well,
1: I think they were just essentially staging a protest. We don't want to go. We don't want to go.
0: But then when the when you know Moses and God agreed, then they'll just stay there. Did did, did the spies eventually realize that they were being punished or did they think they got what they wanted?
1: That's the crazy thing. Great question. Did they ever think of it as a punishment? It's possible that they were happy with their punishment. They're like, great. By the way, Maimonides, Rambam, we're mixing now Kabbalah and philosophy, but I think it might work to your question. Maimonides writes that it wasn't a punishment. He approached it from a different angle. He says psychologically they were slaves. Because you know, this generation was the first generation out, so they, they had a slave mentality. They were psychologically and emotionally broken individuals. They had a lot of trauma. They had dealt with a lot of trauma. And they just, on a practical level, says Rambam, in the Murnavuchim, the guide, uh, guide uh, uh, for the perplexed, he says that as broken, traumatized people, they did not have the inner strength to take on a new challenge, a new frontier. They, there was no way, there's no way that this generation of broken, battered people would be the frontier conquerors. It just, they weren't able to do... We had ju- enough through the two
0: that were, that were strong and we had enough through them to carry on.
1: Ah, so R- Maimonides says that God didn't punish them as much as God understood them and said, I'm not forcing you. In other words, if you're not, if you don't feel capable, ready, strong enough, fortified enough to, to take on this, this mission, I'm not going to push you. So Maimonides with this um, uh, advances his, one of his uh, philosophical concepts that God has patience, that God's not in a rush with us. Right? God says, Here, here's what I want you to do. Here are my values. If this generation doesn't get it right, it's okay. The next one will. If, if they don't get it, eventually it's going to happen. It's like Maimonides in his, again, in his works of philosophy, advances this idea that, look, God's eternal. God is all the time, literally all the time in the world. So it's not like God's like, let's go, let's go, let's get this done. It's like, all right, you don't get it done, it'll get done. Right? So the stuff that God does intervene in, he intervenes. But when God wants us to figure it out, he's got patience. Right? He's got patience. So he said, look. I, I would love for you guys to feel strong enough, this gen- first generation to go in and conquer the land. You can do it. I'm here for you. I'm here with you. I'll make it happen. If you don't want to, I'm not going to push you. So were there a lot
0: less then? So the Jewish population oh. before the...
1: So so it, remember, remember, so we're not including women in the count of people that died out. Um, I mean, there were certainly those that died of natural causes, but they weren't kind of punished or, you know, with, with, this, uh, with this fate. Um, and plus you had children between, under, sorry, uh, uh, under 20 did not, fate, uh, th- were not part of this either. So you had a decent amount of the population and those over 60, although it would be very old, but you had a decent chunk of the population that was still around 40 years later. Not everybody died, right? Um, plus in those 40 years, there was population growth that happened, kids being born that kind of supplanted. Now, what's the final number before they go into Israel? I don't remember if there's another census, if there's another count, but it might be. There might be another count somewhere um, toward the end of the book.
0: There's, so there's less, but there's enough.
1: I don't even know that it's radically less. I don't even know that it's radically less. I think that they did a good job of, uh, of replenishing on s- somehow, some way. Um, you know, if... If you have kids, even through year 20, by year 40, those are 20, right? Those kids are 20. So you have already a next generation coming in into the fold. So in other words, if each of those 600,000 men between age 20 and 60 had one child, right? So that would, that would, you know, over those 40 years, that would just one for one replace it. So it's not far fetched to get back roughly to the same number after the 40 years of, of the generation dying out. And it's important also to note, they didn't all die out right away. You know, some of them died a few years in, several years in, or maybe by the 40th year. So, but I'm just giving you a spiritual insight to understand that a simple reading is, these guys were horrible. They were filled with ego, self-importance. As I said before, uh, you know, self, uh, self-importance. And, and they messed it up. And they just totally messed things up. And, and on one level, that is true. But there's a deeper way of understanding it, and that is that they wanted they wanted a spiritual space and they didn't want to be distracted with the other stuff and they were afraid that being distracted would mess it up.
0: Did anyone else know that they were gonna continue into Israel eventually?
1: You mean the non twenty to sixty males? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because it was only decreed on on a certain segment of the population. Everyone else knew that they were still eligible to enter, again, assuming everything else works out. But what's interesting is when you see the exception, when God says everyone's out except for Caleb, and then Joshua is also mentioned, but Moses is not mentioned. So that foreshadows the idea that Moses was not slated to enter, even, even then, was not slated. If you recall last week, even, by the meat story, and the prophecy, remember Moses uh, was complaining he didn't have enough help. So God says, I'll give you 70 elders to help. And they chose actually 72, but two of them didn't make the cut. So they only 70 instead of 72, because that was the number six per tribe, 72. So two of them but, uh, were not part of that circle, but they did have prophecy in the camp. And, and, and the youth came to Joshua, and, or to Moses, and said, these two young people, or these two people are prophesying in the camp and and joshua says silence them and and moses says they're fine and rashi says what was their prophecy prophecy was moses is going to die and joshua is going to lead the people and joshua says shh, keep that on the download but you can understand now another element to what the spies intended the spies knew based on last week's prophecy yeah that Moses would not lead them into the land of Israel. Which means that if tomorrow they were to advance on Israel, what was going to happen? Moses would die. And they, you with me? There was a prophecy that Eldad and Maeda, the two individuals that were rogue prophesying, and that Joshua wanted to shush. Moses says, let them keep on going. Their prophecy was that what they were saying, foreshadowing, foretelling was, Moses would pass away, And Joshua would lead them into Israel. So now, fast forward a little bit. You're right there near the, well, you know, a few days journey from the border. And you're the spies going in. And you come back 40 days later. And if your report is good, we start moving. If it's bad, you might delay things a little bit. Imagine they gave a good report. And they started moving. You know within a day or two or three or four what's going to happen. Moses will die because that's the prophecy. And there was no indication that it was a false prophecy. So they, and I'm giving you now another interpretation. This comes from Rabbi, um, I think Rabbi David Vital, the son of Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal. So he says that they were so in love with Moses that they were not ready to let him go. They were not ready to see him pass away. And so they threw the mission. They sabotaged the mission, their own mission, in order to delay their going into Israel, which worked, to have more time with their beloved leader.
0: But Moses didn't know that was the motivation, right?
1: Yep. Yep. He was mad. He was mad, yeah. And here's the kicker. Turns out, according to this interpretation, again, 70 facets, right? But according to this interpretation, this story of the spies is a love story, right? You look at it on a simple level, it's like a disaster, these guys, it's power, corruption, sure. Dishonesty, disbelief in God, sure. But you know what, according to what we just said, it's a love story. It's people that love their teacher so much, they'll do anything to keep him around. Even if it means going against what God wants on some level, right? Even if it means defying God, because God says, I want you to go in. And they're like, "Mm, yeah, about that. In order to get more time with Moses. Turns out that it's a love story. And by the way, does Moses ever realize this? Not necessarily. But they got what they wanted. They got another 39, 40 years with Moses. So it worked. Was it wrong? Yes. Were they punished? Yes. Did they get what they want with the spiritual environment for 40 years and Moses' leadership? Yes. All the above. Why were they wrong? It sounds like it's a good thing. Spirituality in the desert, right? Great place to meditate. And uh, Moses is your leader. What's wrong? Number one, because God said, go to the land. Right? God says, I'm giving you the promised land. You go. Number two, the purpose of life is not to bask in spirituality and hang around Moses all day. The purpose of life is that at some point you have that in your life, but then, or, or, or in your day, and then you go out into the world. This is a theme that, we've, that I probably more than any other theme I, I, I share in every, almost every class, it seems. right That the purpose is integration between heaven and earth, between spirituality and material, materiality. The purpose is not to stay stuck in Garden of Eden, the Ark, the Messianic-type Ark, where the animals... divine. Exactly. It's about bringing the two together, making the mundane divine. And you do that when you get a job in Israel, when you become a farmer, and you become responsible to get food somehow. It happens when you leave Moses behind, as painful as that sounds. And now you need a little bit of your own initiative. Right, and you bring God down into your space as you are with your own type of initiative. That's when that magic happens. So yeah, their their calculation was wonderful. We wanna stay in a spiritual environment, we wanna stay close to God, we wanna stay close to Moses, all good. But who says that's where you're supposed to stay? All of us were born, all of us here, Literally, we were born. And before we were born, we were in a womb somewhere in our mother's stomachs, right? We were in a protected environment. And life couldn't get better. You don't have to work. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to make your own food. You don't have to cook. You don't have to quit. Nothing. Everything's taken care of. But that's not the ultimate. Even if it feels like it can't get any better, that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is when we go out on our own and do our thing and, and do that in a, in, a, in a positive way to the best of our ability. That's when the magic happens. And that's the message, precisely the message, that God, sorry, that, um, that, that the spies missed. They had all these wonderful ideals according to the you know, Jewish mysticism. They had all these wonderful holy thoughts, but they forgot or they didn't realize the purpose of life is not abstract holiness. It's about integration you want integration go to israel get out of the desert you want integration it's hard to say this but but, but so as the control
0: do you think he put the two the two of the leaders that you know wanted to follow god's original path within the 12 so that there were two that were able to
1: I guess you still needed two to kind of balance it out and these two were so dedicated to Moses and God that they realized that sometimes the more, that when you're really dedicated, you'll do what your beloved wants, even if it means to leave. Not leave because I'm kicking you out, but leave because I want you on a mission. Like, if you really love me, you'll go where I, where I want you to go, <laughs> right? It's like, um, I, I've given this example before. You know, you're with someone you love and it's Sunday morning and you just want to spend time with them. And they ask you to, can you go down to the store and get, get the newspaper? You're like, no, I want to spend time with you. They're like, okay, but I would love for you to get me the newspaper. So sometimes if you really love, you'll do what they want as opposed to doing what you want or you think they want. When they tell you what they want, that's usually a better indication. So God says, you love me, I want you to go to Israel. Moses says, you love me, go to Israel. And they said, we love you, we want to stay with you. And God and Moses are like, uh, I guess? But that's, not re- that's really not where we want you to be. Anyway, so that's, again, that's a deeper understanding of the story or a deeper perspective on the story. 70 facets. shivim Panama Torah, the different ways to learn Torah. The simple is, you know, they were horrible, just terrible. You know, they didn't believe in God and they didn't believe in Moses and all that stuff. On a deeper level, yeah, they of course they believed. It's just they had a different agenda. Their agenda was stay in the bubble, stay in the cocoon, stay, stay in the womb, stay in the ark, stay in the, in the protective space. Don't, don't, make, don't, don't become vulnerable. And that was their mistake. Either way, it was a mistake. The question is, how, how bad do we think of them in our eyes? And of course, the Kabbalists and the mystics and the Rebbes would always look for the most positive way to understand these stories. Um, especially because it has a beautiful practical application. That means that, yeah, shul is beautiful, but sometimes you have to go out and, and, and help someone in the real world. Or, um, you know, a Jewish holiday is wonderful, but it's what happens the next day that really makes an impact on the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Again, themes that we've spoken about, you know, countless times in these classes. Ray, did you want to jump? Yeah. Yeah. Does the, my mother, these 13 attributes of Hashem have something to do with this? Is this what we're... So, so Maimonides, he articulates 13 principles of faith. What we're talking about here are the 13 attributes of mercy that were penned by God himself, or uh, originate with God himself. Um, they're th- both are 13. It would be interesting if there was some sort of parallel. I don't know. I haven't seen um, a conceptual parallel drawn between those two sets of 13. So Maimonides has his 13 foundational beliefs in Judaism, and then God has 13 expressions of forgiveness, which we pull out in our prayers every day when we're asking for forgiveness after the Yamida. And we pull it out on Yom Kippur multiple times on the Day of Atonement, asking for forgiveness. But are they connected? I mean, it seems kind of interesting that both are 13. That's what I would say. And Echad, does that not 13? You know, it's very possible. I think it's you, you know what else is interesting. Echad. The gematria of Echad is 13. Think about it. Aleph is 1. Ches is 8. So that's 9. And Dalat is 4, right? Aleph, Bet, Gimel, dalet 4. So 1 plus not... Wait. 1 plus 8 plus 4. Let's just do it backwards. 4 plus 8 is 12, plus 1 is 13. So Echad, 1, is really 13. Anyway, that opens up all sorts of uh, possibilities.
0: 13 is a positive
1: number, but, you know, in America, yes. it's a negative number. I know, right? It's so weird that that's the case. I don't know the history of 13 being an unlucky number in in, in Western culture. I'm sure there's some sort of, you know, origin story on that. But, yeah, Friday the 13th, you know, ooh. Or, like, um, you know, some elevators. I've been in elevators where they don't have a 13th floor. Have you seen that? That's true. Right? And it's like... It's just you know just a number, and it's a good number in, in, in Judaism. It's Bar Mitzvah, it's Echad, right? It's half of the numerology of God's name, which is uh, the Yud Yod, and He, and Vav, and He is 26, so divided by two is 13, right? So there's our Echad, our oneness, connecting with God's oneness, 13 to 13, one to one is God's name, is the completion of God. I mean, so it's like all this beautiful symbolism what what are you gonna do, right? I guess we can protest, but what's that gonna do? It to the world. That's it. Let's reclaim the number thirteen and uh, and make it a good number. You know, uh, restore it to its to its, uh, its 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 real place. Okay, so this is what I wanted to cover today. Um, kind of continue the narrative, but also like take a few deeper looks at the entirety of the narrative, and really see how you know what seems to be just a straight up case of you know terrible people doing terrible things, God forbid, there's really a bit of a, of a deeper understanding here. It's people that maybe have had a good intention, a really good intention, that just were a little bit misguided as, as far as what's really right or wrong or what's really ideal or not ideal. This explains why the Torah calls them people of distinction. They were distinguished people. They were holy people. They were righteous people. They were too righteous. They were too holy for their own good. They, were too, they wanted to stay pure. They didn't want to cut the cord. But that's not what life is. It was time to cut the cord. God said it's time. Moses says it's time. and The people said it's not time. So God says it's not time. All right, so it's not time. Someone someday is going to cut the cord. It'll be your kids. Okay. All right, so that's it for today um tomorrow let me just quickly take a look oh i don't know about tomorrow let me see if i got a message hold on